This is an unexpected launch, a show about stories and the people behind them. Stories about people who've been through something unexpected with grace. These are stories of resilience, connection, and community. They're stories of lives being rewritten, rebuilt, and reimagined. I'm Kirsten Duncan, and today we're speaking with Shay. Shay is a dynamic storyteller, and she's urging us to see her and to see all people of color. Shay and I are going to have an open conversation today about what it's like to be a Black woman living in the United States of America. Shay is a storyteller, a hope slinger, and a fierce encourager. She's also a wife, a mom, an inspirational speaker, and a life coach. Shay's superpower is making people feel seen and heard, encouraging people to be who they are and to follow their dreams. She has a natural gift in bringing people together and, and being connected and understood. And her superpower is a, is a soothing gift that we all need right now. We need to see people, to see Black people, to know Black people and understand what's in their hearts. And Shay, I'm sitting in front of you today to tell you that I can never understand what your experience is, but I'm here to tell you that I'm here with an open heart and I'm listening and I want to understand what I and everybody can do to make a difference. Wow. So first of all, thank you for that intro. I want to know that, Shay. <laughs> can that girl become my friend too? Um, I was like, that person sounds amazing. Um, she is. I am so excited to be here, and I'm so excited to just have a heart-to-heart -heart, um, with you about, about race, about humanity, about just being, you know, I, I often believe in the best of us, and I believe in the best of us rise. Um, yeah, I, I, I do. No matter what I see, I'm like, no, you're not tricking me. We're not going down like that. The best of us is still here. Well, and that's why I want to speak to you today. And, and what I really want to start with and open our conversation with is I'd like for you to share with us what is in your heart right now. Ooh, you know, gosh, there's so many things in my heart. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I want to make sure that so there's so many things. One of the things that's in my heart is asking good questions. And I spoke to you about that a little bit. I was like, you know, I think right now where I'm in my life is that we need to ask good questions. And there's a difference between good questions and inferior questions. And good questions <clears throat> lead to transformation and lead to expansion of mind and heart. You know, they really do. Um, and bad questions or inferior questions lead to more circling of the drain, more hopelessness, or they lead to you being more ensconced in what you already believe before you ask the damn question. So I am not interested in the inferior question because no, no change occurs there. Change only occurs in the good question. And I've been talking, that's been kind of like a talking point of mine and a lot of people, and I've been getting like these messages behind the scenes like, you're so right, but what are good questions? How do I know it's a good question? And this is how I know. Like I really process this girl, and, I, and I, when I go running in the morning, I think a lot. I'm just like, ooh, yeah. And this is what makes a good question. 
you have to think about the motivations. Don't just think about what the thing is. You need to think about intentionality and you need to think about motivations. That's a big thing. Those are the things that will dictate a good question. So for example, what I mean by that is, let me give an example of a good question. So I, uh, when I first started this at the beginning of the pandemic, I interviewed this amazing artist that I, I love. His name is Brian Andreas. Have you ever heard of him? He, oh my God, his story people and the whimsy and the brilliant statements he makes. So I love it. So I reached out to him and he's like, yes. And I'm like, wow, really? Okay. Um, I have totally hoodwinked this guy. But anyway, so we sit down and we start talking. And he was talking about, um, he and Fia, his partner, were talking about, there was a time when their company was kind of going through the motions and movement. And there was a lot of things that were happening. And they had an older person, an older lady who'd been with the company for some years, like say 20 years. And several things were happening. The, co- the, the company, as they knew it, was changing, all the employees. Um, the software and technology and things that they were being called upon to utilize were completely different. It was a co- completely different environment. FIA was there now. So all these changes are taking place. And FIA talks about the fact that the lady who was in that kind of administrative position, she'd been there for a while. She just recently lost her husband about six months prior to that. And she was in her mid to late 60s. And one day, Fia went over to the desk when she was not there and she moved her stapler girl. She moved that stapler. She used the stapler. And when the lady came back, she lost her mind. She lost her mind. Now, the inferior question would be like, you're just acting ridiculous. This is absolutely unacceptable. It's just a stapler. But there's no transformation. There's no change. There's no, there's no understanding of one another or whatever is going on. And Theo said she felt inclined to kind of be like, what are you talking to like that, you know, for a second. But then she thought to herself, why would, why would this response be a reasonable response to her? Why would it be reasonable for this lady to go off and act a fool over a stapler? And she put herself in her shoes. She goes, okay, she's just lost her husband. She feels extremely lonely. Her life feels without tremendous value and purpose. She's feeling, she's feeling the clock and she's feeling that her life is less relevant. And so maybe if I were feeling that, the the higher level, the good question goes, oh, why would why would that be a reasonable response? And the answer was, this lady was in like a shit storm, right? So now you don't just look at her acting ridiculous with the um, stapler. You look at why would that be a reasonable out, outflow of action and behavior. And therefore, transformation can take place. Because I always say, if you sit in a seat of awareness, you sit in a seat of power. So now I know. I'm aware of what this lady is going through. So... I don't have any expectation for her to act sane when it comes to anything with her world. Because what she felt like, she felt like somebody was encroaching upon the boundaries of her world. And she was in a desperate place. How can that make us a worse person for us to think the higher questions? So I think the higher questions, 
think about the motivation and the intentionality. The lower question is just look at the thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's what's on my heart. I love that. And I'm going to get to that in a little bit uh, when we talk about some of the less peaceful protesting that's going on, because I, I'd like to dig into that a little bit more. But I'd like to, to go back. So you were raised in the Bahamas. And when you were growing up, you never felt undervalued or less than because of the color of your skin. And at some point in your life, you realized that people viewed and valued you differently because of the color of your skin. Could you share a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, growing up in the Bahamas, um, like 85% of the people look like me, right? So just as white people do not have a race in America, um, black people really don't have a race in the Bahamas. And what I mean by that, because oftentimes when I say that to white people, they're like, you mean white people don't have a race in America? Yeah, we don't. Think about describing people. They'll be like, you know, the guy with dark hair, you know, the short lady, it's kind of curly. All of those descriptors make one assumption. That person is white. Because when they're not, this is what I do. You know the Asian lady? The black guy. <laughs> so we, cause so I, I loved it. One time I remember purposely being like, Oh, the guy with dark hair? Him? Pointing to a brother, no one did him well that they were not talking about that black man. But my point is, oh, that's really nice that you only have to use the adjective of dark hair. And I'm supposed to assume it also, the dark hair comes with white skin. So my point is, I was just as, though, it, like, unaware of my race or uh, what I, I didn't know I was black until I came to America. And, why, and when I say that, people are like, what? I knew I looked like this. I just didn't know that there was a narrative about this that you had that had Jack to do with me. I didn't know that. I thought, and, and that's a heavy narrative. Can you imagine, like, you're just being who you are, and you come into this world, and then there's this narrative that is being thrown over you, and you're like, that's, that's not who I, that's not me but you're having to fight against this narrative because what you're being told solidly is, yes, it is. Yes, it is you. So I come to America. My mom's American. My father's a Bahamian. And my parents were having a bad go at their marriage. And so my mom reached out to her sisters who were then living in Holland and Grand Rapids, Michigan, at that time, Holland, and said, hey, you know, can you help me with the girls? And my aunt being my aunts being good sisters were like send those girls here we got them so i get there and i remember pine creek elementary school in in uh holland michigan and two things happened one i remember when i first got there being called nigger and you know why i said nigger and i didn't say the n-word because i was seven years old and my seven-year-old soul did not hear the N-word. My seven-year-old soul heard nigger. And I remember not knowing what it meant. True story. I remember being like, what does that mean? What does that mean? And I don't know how long it took for me to figure it out. You know, time is a little ethereal when you look back on it, especially if you're looking back at time and moments in your childhood it could have been a day it could have been a week I don't know but I remember sitting down being like nigger what does 
that mean? I could tell it wasn't something good because their faces looked mean when they said it. But I didn't know what it had. And I think at a certain point, I remember going, I'm the only brown person in this room. I think it has something to do with this. Let me look into that. I think it has something to do with this. And the other thing that was happening is I was seven years old. I'd already done um, second grade in the Bahamas. And I was I, I was arguing my case that I needed to be in third grade. And I look back on it now. It seemed like, yeah, that's totally what you have to do. But I look back at that little girl and I think, well done, Shay. Bravo. Bravo. Like, you are arguing for your rights. And I was like, no, I've already done I've already done second grade. I'm not doing second grade again. And those white teachers lost their mind. They're like, okay, fine. You're going you're, you're gonna to be in third grade? Special ed. They put me in special ed. Hmm. Now, I'm not trying to be funny. And I'm not trying to act like there aren't smarter people in this world. But I can tell you what I do not struggle with is being intelligent. <laughs> So if you're going to put me in, it was like, it was cruel, right? And I remember, I remember really clearly once I knew it had something to do with me being brown and I just really wanted to be their friends. And I was really trying to let them know, like, I really just want to be your friend. Maybe that, maybe they don't realize that I just want to be their friend. So I remember going up one time I was on the, like the monkey bars, you know, at recess and you're having fun and. And we're doing the monkey bars, and I was really good at the monkey bars. I was like, it was really fast, and just like, and um, this little boy did not like the fact that I could do it really fast. And I remember him kicking me off or pushing me off of the monkey bars, and I hit my eye up against the side pole. And honestly, until I was in college, I had this scar that was like where the skin had pulled back over that up. Uh, place where the bone is right there in the eye and I remember running over to the prefect you know like the adult on the playground I remember being like oh my goodness he keeps calling me nigger and then he pushed me off in a thing and, and you know what is really interesting what I remember I don't remember anybody taking care of this wound I don't remember I'm not saying it didn't happen but I find it interesting that I have no memory of being taken care of. But you know what I do have very, very clear memory of? I have very clear memory of me telling this grown lady that he kept calling me nigger, and she said, sticks and stones. Sticks and stones, okay? Sticks and stones are very your bones, but words will never hurt you. Come on, Shay. And so at that point in my life, I remember feeling like, oh, this is hurting my feelings because I'm too sensitive. And for me... That's something that I encounter with white culture all the time, that I feel a certain way. And it's not because white culture is doing something to me or being harsh to me. It's kind of like, no one meant it like that. Like, you're just being uber sensitive. And I'm like, ah, or, or am I being unkind? You know what I mean? So, I don't know. That was just telling to me. And it's kind of one of those things that you look back at some of the adults who were over you as a child and you're like, when you become an adult, you're like, who were these jacked up people? You shouldn't have been over children. This little brown girl runs up to you. She's crying. She's scared. And you tell her sticks and stones. That's not good. 
Well, and what I think is interesting is, is you have somewhat of a unique experience is that you grew up in, in a, in a, in the Bahamas where your skin color didn't matter. So you went from one environment to another wholly unprepared for the fact that the color of your skin was going to view how children were going to treat you and how adults were going to manage how they were treating you. Did you ever, was that something that you talked about with your, with your mom or your aunt? Was that a discussion in your home? It's interesting. Um, so I, I remember, I don't know why I want to tell you this, but I remember when I was a little girl in Freeport, I thought I was pretty and I thought I was wonderful. And then I got to Holland, Michigan and that's when I realized I was ugly. I didn't, I, you know, I was ugly. I, I almost, I remember I wasn't even really a girl. I was like a, a black body. And I, I thought my uncle and I have had this conversation since then. I remember, I felt like I told my aunt and uncle, like they keep calling me nigger at school and they're being really unkind. And, but my uncle said, what he remembers is that I was crying and because they know they saw that I was brown. That's just, that's the language that he remembers me sharing with him. So I guess I don't recall having deep conversations, but I do remember telling my family like I was being hurt. And, oh my gosh, I look back at those moments and I see too that my aunt and uncle weren't equipped in knowing how to battle it with their children. Can you imagine? I just want to, can you imagine like your little niece, nephew, daughter coming to you and they're talking about the very thing that afflicts you. And you would want them not to have it be afflicting them in their young little lives. And also, you don't have an answer to the larger construct of racism that exists in this world. So all you can do is try to buttress this child with the ability to withstand difficulty. The ability to withstand not being loved or liked. Predicated solely upon this. And that was a hard thing. So I remember my uncle, now I realized, you know, he didn't, he didn't give me great tools, but he didn't have great tools. He didn't know what he was doing either. All he knew was he was just trying to live too. So I remember him saying, Shay, you just stick your chest out. You say, I'm black and I'm proud and I'll say it out loud. But that didn't shit for my little heart that was broken. Right. But I know he wasn't not trying to give me something. He was trying to give me every tool that he had to combat something that his generation had yet to figure out how to combat. Yeah. And that's another thing. Why does it always have to be black people who have to figure out how to destroy this thing? Mm -hmm. This is something that should be disgusting to everybody. And it shouldn't be on my shoulders to figure out a plan to get it eradicated. And if, if, if I'm a part of it, I should be a part of a larger context that involves everybody trying to figure out how do we dismantle white supremacy how do we dismantle where we tell other human beings they do not count for anything that cannot be a good thing it's not a good thing for us as human beings to have that be our lauded like ideology that's Mm -hmm. not good yeah it's not good 
It take it takes everybody. It, it doesn't it doesn't take one one group of people making a decision, coming up with a solution. Um, Especially the group of people who are under the weight of it. Right. I have to come up with a creative ways to get your foot off of my back. Right. I shouldn't. No. The so, good question is, sorry. No. Nope, the good keep question going. in that scenario would be, why are we consistently raising people who want to put feet on people's backs? That is the elevated question. Right. Because now that can lead to transformation. What are we doing? What are we doing in society to contribute to? That's the person that I'm interested in knowing. How did we build him? How did you know? I know we'll probably get there, but like with George Floyd's death, the good question is not like someone just told me the other day. Today, actually, one of my clients. I don't bring it up. One of my clients were like, yeah, somebody said to me, like, well, you know, he wasn't perfect. I'm like, that is not what we're trying to say. Nobody's trying to say he's perfect. No. That's not the good question. The good question is, how have we, as America, raised a son who could choke the life out of another one of our sons, chewing gum and looking people in the eye? That is a scary thing. Yeah. We have raised that. Yeah. And we should want to not raise that any longer, right? I know I would hate that that's the kind of person Kaya grew up to be, my daughter. I'm like, that's the good question, y'all. The intelligent question is, what have we done to create a son that could do that to another son? Because both of them, both of them are our sons. Both of them are. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to go back really quickly to uh, being that young girl in Michigan. You shared with me that every night you prayed to God for him to make your skin white. I did. How does that make you feel now when you look back and you think about that? Mm. Well, you know, time and distance, it gives you perspective, right? So... Now I feel just like I felt sad for that little girl who went up to that adult and thought, if, when you're younger, you think all adults are good. At least I remember thinking that. So I thought she was going to save me and protect me. And, and she didn't. And so my takeaway, we're young, so we internalize everything. My takeaway was I wish that I were worthy of her to care about, right? Mm-hmm. To want to protect I wish that I weren't brown so then she could take care of me, you know? Not the good question like, what is this jacked up adult on, don't be a prefect, lady. Don't be a prefect. If you can't take care of children, you don't, you're in the wrong job. You know what I mean? So looking back at that little girl, Shay, I can see her as if she belongs to someone else. And my heart is just broken that... I prayed to God. I remember actually using these words. God, if you loved me, if you loved me, you'd make me white. So go ahead. Just And I remember closing my eyes and being like, okay, if you have faith as a grain of the mustard seed, you, anything is possible. Faith is a grain of mustard seed. Faith is a grain of mustard seed. Faith is a grain of mustard seed. And that's really... Um, that's actually really devastating. I would I would be brokenhearted if Kaya ever told me that. 
like Kaya, she just shared with me for the first time a couple days ago that she thought she was fat. Hmm. And it broke my heart, you know, she's not, but it broke my heart that she saw herself in any way that was less than beautiful and Hmm. wonderful and a gift to me. She's my gift, you know, and that little Shay, Shay was her parents' gift and she was praying to have it changed because all she wanted was to live an easier life. That's it. I just wanted friends. I just wanted people to like me and not have this thing that went into the room before I did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in, in that same vein, if I can share another story is, and I'm, I know I'm talking a lot, was it's what we're here for. When, thank you. When I went, went back to school, I went back to boarding school. I went to boarding school after that third grade. And, and um, I came back in seventh grade because you know, it was just more contention issues in my mother and father's marriage and her sisters were always there to catch her. And I remember I had this English teacher named Mr. Bonnets. I remember his name. I don't remember it. That's a year. And by the way, you don't know this about me. I remember every one of my teacher's names from nursery <laughs> class until I graduated. But you know, the only grade that I do not remember, I don't remember one teacher in third grade. Hmm. I don't remember one teacher's name in third grade. And I don't remember any teachers in seventh grade except for Mr. Von Enns. And I remember him because he was particularly cruel to me. So he used to make fun of my big ass in class in English. He would, he would, he was an English teacher and he would say, he would say, images that I have in my head is him teasing that I would fall from the sky and my ass is so big that it would just like cover up all the school desks in the class again I would have to become an adult before I realized what first of all what were you doing looking at a little 11 year old girl's butt and I remember feeling like if my ass wasn't so big he wouldn't have to talk about how disgusting it is I'm just saying like I know I'm not everybody's, everybody may not recognize that I am their kin, but I am. And you don't want anybody talking to your people like that. That's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why I want to share that, but those kinds of things form you. And, you know, and we already have so many insecurities and, and during the time when hormones are all over the place, he just was another voice that made it harder for me to love myself. You know? And I'd be an adult before I realized how jacked up he was. And I wasn't a jacked up person in the story. You know, and it, it's so unfortunate to think that individuals who are in a role of helping to educate and um, be around children uh-huh. didn't have the humanity to treat you all with yeah. compassion and love. Right. Well, well, hugely a part of their their analysis of me, I'm not really human. <laughs> you know, I, you have to make me something else. You know, I was just saying to one of my friends the other day, I'm like, look, I was three pursuant, <laughs> I was trying to be like, I know that 
I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having nationalistic pride, but there's something wrong with having nationalistic pride when you refuse to acknowledge that it hasn't been the same America to everybody, and that maybe I have different experiences that would have made me feel different. It's kind of like that man, you know, who's very gregarious and um, outgoing, and he's very charming at the party, but he beats his wife at home. She has a different view of him, okay, than all the other people at the party. Yeah. Everybody at the party is like, Chad is amazing. You know, he's just great. He says the right thing. He's smart. He's always like, just in it. I like Chad. And she's like, Chad knocked the shit out of me last night, and I just want him to stay happy, so maybe he won't knock the shit out of me tonight. So I think there needs to be an understanding that we have different experiences. And what maybe want to share that? I will get back to it. Sorry that my thought went off. But I, I just think that I know what I was saying is that what I was talking about was that the, the Constitution of the United States of America had to have an amendment to make me fully human. But you better believe I was human before it was ever written. I was human before it was ever written. And it's insulting that my humanity was not considered intact and fruitful until you penned it. Do you think I give a shit about what you penned? Do you see what I'm saying? At some point, I have to go like, okay, I get it. Even it, we want order. We want. We have these legal high thoughts and dreams, and they are good. Those are. The, but the truth is, if the language of the Constitution and the hope that it expressed was fully executed, there would be no need for an amendment. Right. Because the, the language, the original language, should have captured me. Right. The fact that we had to make an amendment lets me know that the original language was high and mighty. It was beautiful. But it clearly was not let me well. Right. Right? Right. I don't know why I wanted to go off of that. But I do know that it's important to think about other people's experiences. And... And it's a good thing to think about other people's experiences. Oftentimes, I know that there's kind of like this, like, why do I have to keep talking about you? It's a good thing to think about other people's experiences. Yeah. It makes you more perceptive. It makes you more caring. It makes you more empathetic. And none of those things can be bad. You know, I, I have a friend whose grandfather served served in World War II. And you know what she told me? I can't even remember who, who it was, but I remember the story coming at me that, that her grandfather fought World War II, fighting. And when they got prisoners of war, the prisoners of war ate in the same mess hall as the American soldiers. But the black men had to eat out back. Do you understand? That's a schizophrenic relationship. So what, what I'm fighting for, I'm fighting for liberties that you won't extend to me. To me. That is some shit. And honestly, if there's anybody who really, really needs to be lauded as super nationalistic and super like, oh my God, this person is patriotic, it is a black person who could fight for liberties that they never saw on their home soil. That is something special and spectacular. 
So it's not that I want that to happen, but what I'm telling you is when, when hard things are asked of you, the best of you rises up. The best of you. Mm-hmm. So those black brothers and sisters were put, really black men, because there weren't black women there. Black brothers were put in a situation that life called the best of them up because those around them were not operating out of their best. Right. So one thing that I that we're kind of touching on a little bit, and you talk about the experience that I have living in the United States of America is very different because I am a white woman. Absolutely. I would love for you to share because I don't know what I don't know and what I don't experience. So could okay. you tell all of the white people who really want to know what is it like to be a black woman? or black man living in the United States? You know, that is such a, I actually was answering that question unbeknownst to me on my drive here from work. And one of the things that I had to learn early on is how to make white people like me. And I, girl, I'm an expert at it. I'm an expert (laughs) at it. I can make white people feel comfortable, at ease, and now they can see me. And I can't complain about the skill because it's pretty damn magical. But when you think about it at its essence and you start employing those good questions that we've been talking about, that's not good. That's not good that I've had to learn how to make you feel at ease, comfortable, and make you feel, make you like me before I can even properly navigate it. So that's a lot. That's a lot of cumbersome, you know, behaviors, you know? And so life as a black woman in America, whatever I experience, whatever great things, sad things, difficult, whatever I experience, I experience it with the greater complication of being brown and navigating your spaces. So that's why if you've ever worked where there's more than one one black person there, when they see each other in the room, there's a light. I see you. There's a nod. And I never knew really that until I came to America. And I remember um, somebody speaking to that maybe to me when I was in law school and I was like, let me pay attention. And it was true. Anytime there's one black person or another black person in the room, there's a, I, there's a, I see you. We're going to see each other. Mm -hmm. Because we are the only ones who fully understand what we're having to do to navigate this space with finesse. Yeah. So I can't really complain in that it's made me pretty adept at uh, being in any environment, any environment, Mm -hmm. and finding common ground. Because that's what I have to do. I have to make you find common ground with me so that you can see me. So I became an expert at that. And Hmm. I still am. That's an added layer. As you say, that's just, that's a lot of work. And to just, you know, I'm, And some days you just don't feel like doing the work. Some days I'm like, some days I come home to my wife's house and I'm like, let me just tell you about your people. Tired today. Today just was a tired day. I feel like putting on one more layer of anything, but I did. You know? Yeah. 
So I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Um, I want to ask you a question. What do you fear by the mere fact that your skin is brown and your daughter's skin is brown? What fears do you have around that? I'm fearful of the narrative that you may have, and I don't know all the nuances of said narrative and how that narrative can impact truly my life. And, it, and it, again, it doesn't have anything to do with me in the specific. It has to do with your perception of me in the abstract. And that's, that's, a, difficult, that's a difficult enemy to box. It's like shadow boxing. So there are things that I fear when you are someone who has power over me, you are someone who has um, weaponry over me. Um, those things are scary. So years ago, when I worked in new home sales, that's how, that's how we eat. And years ago, I was selling a home to a gentleman. <clears throat> and I genuinely, I'm really good at customer service. Um, you... I'm not perfect at anything, and that's not what I'm trying to put myself off as being perfect. But what I do know is that I'm very good at customer service because I really do care. And I was really trying to understand and help him. And he was like this total, like, redneck white guy. But I don't care. I'm like, bring your redneck, you know? Because I'm thinking, you're still going to, I'm still going to make you like me. It's still going to happen. Hmm. And he was just determined not to like me. And every time he would come into the model home, he would get out of his truck. I watched him do this. He would get out of his truck. He would um, close his door. He would go into the back of his seat, back seat. He would he'd pull out a gun and he'd put it on his hip and he would come in. He never came into that model home to talk to me without it on his hip. And... So there's two things. One, I didn't feel like I had management who cared. Like I wanted to tell someone. I, I felt like I need. I think I need to tell someone this because he scares me. He scares me, and he only put it on to intimidate me. It, I mean, it was. I'm all about your, you know, your license to carry. That's not even what I'm talking about. You are coming from your truck into the model home. You're not even turning off your truck, but you have to go in the back seat to come in to talk to Shay with your gun on your hip. Hmm. That's intimidation. Yeah. So I was always scared because anytime I talked to him, I would really genuinely be trying to give him great customer service. And I remember one time I was like, well, it's really important to me when I'm talking with someone that they are understood and that I and, and I am understood by them. And you know what he said to me? It's really important to me that I leave right now before I do something. Right. Huh. So when you asked that question, I knew I didn't know what this guy was capable of. But I knew that my black butt needed to figure out how to navigate that with finesse. And and I was scared every time he came in. And I think he knew it. Use it to his advantage. Yeah, yeah, he knew it. He knew that I was scared. And um, so I, I'm, I'm scared of things like that. I'm scared of 
because I can tell you this, that man never once interfaced with me. Mm, yeah. He interfaced with whatever thing he had mm-hmm. in his head about me. Mm-hmm. And so I was shadow boxing. Yeah. yeah. Well, and how can, how can you meet somebody in the middle when you don't know where they are? Or how can you begin right. to have a conversation when you don't know what they're thinking, what perceptions they're bringing, that you don't even know what you have to overcome to even get That's to right. a point? That's exactly right. You don't even know what you have to overcome. So then you will default to just being like, okay, so how do I people please the hell out of this game? Hmm. Because I know that I, I know I need to make him feel comfortable. So I, I'm cons- I think about things like that. Like I make my daughter go run, and I'm like, did you, did, you, did you run today? Did you go run? Did you did you sweat? Did you you know? Did you breathe hard? You know? Did you move your body? And I think about I. We make her carry her phone, and it's on Life 360, and we stay right where we are. We know where you're going to go. You're going to go down the street. You're going to come back, and that's a mile. That is so two miles. Go do it. And so I'm thinking about those things, just another added layer, just like a mother would worry about their 13-year-old daughter running by themselves um, in a good neighbor. Like, she really just feels just like you would worry about yours, but then you put on top of it, but what if someone who has a narrative about her interfaces with her in ways that are displeasing? You know, honestly, I didn't even know if our daughter identified as black. I didn't even, I, I didn't know. And I didn't want to make her come up with some identification. Right. You know, I was just like, because uh, um, she called white people for the longest, creamy. She's like, yeah, I know he was creamy like daddy. <laughs> like, I've so never creamy. heard that. Creamy. Nor did I. Huh. When you think about it, that's what you are. You're creamy. You're not white. Just yeah. like I'm not black, I'm brown. Fascinating. Yeah. So, so beyond sort of the, the conversation that you're having with her about safety when she's out running, with what kinds of conversations are you having with her? And as you think of other black children, what, yeah. what would you want them to carry in their heart? What I really want them to carry in their heart or what I think they have to carry in their heart. And I'm so what, sorry. What? I'm so sorry. Those are two different things. Yeah, they are. So what I would want for them to carry in their heart is that they are beloved and that they're needed and they're wanted and that they are all of our children. That's what I want for them to do. And that they are celebrated. You know, one day I was driving home and uh, there's this weird exit that I have to get off and it makes you do a U-turn in. And it was raining and there was this man. So it's a perfect place for the homeless people line up and sit down because they have your undivided attention because they know you have to wait till that light turns and then you got to turn around and they're still there on that island. It's actually pretty good real estate, smart homeless people. <laughs> and um, one day I was coming home and I saw this homeless man sitting Indian style or crisscross applesauce is what I was told to say. And in the middle and he had a thing over his, like a hoodie over, and he was just huddled. And the only reason why I knew that he was black is because you could see his hands. And in his hands, he held a sign that said one simple word, help. Oh, my God. I cannot tell you. I spontaneously cried when I saw him. I was like, <laughs> let me put, let me go in this well. I mean, like, it's just, 
he was like, I don't even got time to tell you no story. I don't have time to tell you what I did, who I served, none of it. I need one thing, help. And I think the reason why I cried for a lot of different things, but I think I cried because he was somebody's baby boy. Somebody celebrated his coming. Somebody celebrated his arrival. Somebody said, Louise, girl, I am pregnant. (laughs) Somebody said, and, and, and celebrated his whole arrival. And he was there. So what me do I want our kids to know? Our brown babies, your brown baby, my somebody said that about him. You know? What do I want them to know? I want them to know that they are beloved. That they are here and it's not an accident and that they're here to bring us something special. I want them to know what I want everybody to know. You came to this planet at this precise time to bring us something. And I want them to feel empowered to bring it. Yeah. Now, what do I know they have to in order to properly navigate? They need to, they need to understand that there are narratives that exist that have nothing to do with them that they will be contending with. Yeah. And I want them, they have to actually seek out peace and seek out the higher road of being. And by the way, I just want to say, black people have always been called upon to be the higher and the better. I'm not saying that white people aren't wonderful, but in our situation... We didn't develop a race problem. That's why I'm saying, like, I didn't have a problem with me being black. You had a problem with me being black. So black people, people of color, have had to come up with ways to, to make it easier for you consistently. Because also, it helps them live, live less encumbered if they keep you happy. Right. Does that make sense? Yep. So I actually do want my daughter to understand. Yeah. I hate, and I want to say this, I hate that I want her to understand that. Absolutely. I just want her to navigate life well. Well, and I think as parents, we all want that and we want that for our children. And, and there is that added level or layer of complexity that you're you're speaking to. And as you say, you hate that. But yet, at the same time, it's a part of raising your children. True. Yep. And if we didn't, they would not be well equipped. So that that brings me to to another thought, and that's around white privilege. Yes. And what would you say to white men, women, and children who do not understand the yeah. privileges that are granted to them because of the color of their skin. Yeah. I would say, so you know why I think it's so abhorrent to people who do not believe in white privilege, why they hate it. There's like this, this like intrinsic, like, what are you talking about? It's because they, they're, they're hearing, I didn't work hard. I didn't grow up in a trailer park. My mom didn't beat me. She did all these, like, my life was a shit storm. And they're hearing someone minimize the, the gravity and the, the difficulty and the heartache. And no one's minimizing it. I see the shit storm. I know that there are a whole lot of people who occupy this planet who have been done wrong and shouldn't have. There's a whole lot of children growing up with a 
all kinds of skin colors, all kinds of hair colors, all kinds of eye color, and they are not loved in ways that they need and they deserve. I know that. But what I do know is that their lives are not made more complicated just because they're white. That's all white privileges. It's just your life is not made more complicated. Because you have shit storms. That boss is still a jackass. But your life is not more complicated in a larger scheme because you are white. That's all it is. It's kind of like, here's an American privilege we have. Here's American privilege. We have difficulties. But we do not have to worry about waking up. And I interviewed a guy from um, the Middle East. Um, and... There were snipers all over his nation when he was growing up. And when he and his friend were like in one of those like old destroyed buildings, and they're like looking through his his young friend got shot straight in the eye by a sniper and his young friend died in front of him. Here's a privilege. I never have to fear that. I've never even thought like I'm going to get shot by a sniper in my backyard running on the greenway. That That's our American privilege. Our lives are not made more complicated. They're difficult, but they're not more complicated because we're American, right? Right. Yeah, that's the same thing. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's something that some people just haven't really thought about and need to think about and need to understand what that is. So one of the things that I think, um, you know, the, the response that we're seeing to George Floyd It's somewhat unlike previous responses in that I see more unification. I see companies speaking out about what they're going to donate to from, you know, major corporations all across social media. I I feel like there there is this momentum and there's peaceful protests in hundreds of cities across the world. What do you think is different about today that we're seeing this type of a response? I think, one, I think white people could still nuance different deaths. They could still be like, yeah, you know, Trayvon shouldn't have had them Skittles in his hand. And, uh, you know, with Tamir Rice, I mean, it was a toy gun. You know, I think that we, and that's, again, a higher level question is, why is there a propensity to want to minimize and nuance black people dying? That's, that's the deeper question. That will actually help you be a better person. It helps yeah. me be a better person. Yeah. So I think there was no room for white people to nuance anything. He couldn't nuance that. That man put his knee on his neck, chewing gum, looking calm. And I want to say this. Have you ever been in a room when someone has died? I have. I have. I have too. Yeah. How was the experience for you? It was absolutely traumatic. <laughs> It's traumatic. It is traumatic. But when they left, it truly is. When they left, did you feel they're leaving? Did you feel like they're here and they're gone? You do, don't you? Yes. I know. I've been with someone who was here and then they go. So this is why that man felt George go and still chewed gum. What? What have we done? I think it made it too... We can't ignore this, and we cannot be complicit to this. We we raised him. Yeah. Our culture raised him. You know how almost broken and demonic it is to be able to keep your knee and feel calm when you feel, oh, my 
forgiveness, that energy rising, I have felt the, the going of another soul. And it's a big thing. Yeah. It's not just like, oh, I don't feel, you feel it. And I think we couldn't ignore it. There's no nuances to that. Hmm. That's, that's a... And I think a, that his life had to be the thing that had no nuance. I, because, I mean, you look at this man and his his children and the, and his family and the life that he's led. And, and to your point, when people are saying, well, he did this one bad thing and... Um, I have a lot of bad things. I have done a lot of bad things. Yeah. I had so many parking tickets in law school that I had a boot on my car <laughs> and a bench worn out for my rest because I would take the ticket off my window and just throw it on the floorboard and keep it rolling until they're like, uh, nah, girl, you ain't going nowhere. Let's put that boot on your car. And then my, I had to call my girlfriend, Julia Mariani, who was older than me and ahead of me, to be like, I was like, there's a bench worn out for my rest. And I got these tickets. I just, just like, how many? I'm like, I don't know. I've been collecting them for about a month or so. I mean, it was terrible. And I probably had it every day. And they, because she was already attorney, she got her law firm to negotiate it down to a fine, like, uh, akin to littering and $150 and no more, and remove the bench warrant. They had, that was a privilege, though. Can you imagine? Right. Can you imagine that someone else could have died in that situation? Yeah. I'm laughing because that's silly. Yeah. So if there's never an all right time that justifies the murder of somebody, I don't care how bad they are. Yeah. A hundred percent. So, I mean, one of the things that I think is, is as the, Amer probably, it, you know, I think more in America than ever, you know, causes come and we get all behind them. We're super excited. And then tomorrow, well, there's something else that we, we turn our attention to. And so that interest just wanes after time. Yeah. How do we harness this momentum? There's so much momentum. I think there is so much passion behind yeah. wanting to make change. How do we keep this going today? Well, I think it's really encouraging to our spirits that we see how collective and how powerful we can be when we come together. So I think the momentum will keep I think it will, I actually think that this momentum is not going to stop. I think we're going to get more and more codified, more and more together, because it's kind of like, you know, when you're going to the gym and you lose two pounds, you're like, you know what, I'm going to keep going to the gym. I'm going to keep going to the gym. But if you like go to the gym and you bust your ass for like 30 days, it's like the scale says the same thing. Matter of fact, on some days it says you're a pound heavier. You lose heart. It breaks your heart. Jesus, what's happening? So I think. The encouraging part about all of these groupings is that we are seeing the best of us rise. Yeah. And when we see the best of us, we want more of that. Yeah. We want to be more best. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that's what I think we need to do. Keep looking at the good things. You keep looking at the good things and keep acknowledging how good it feels to be good. Yeah. It feels good. It does feel good. And I have to say that when I see these pictures, uh, there was a picture of yesterday in Portland, individuals laying body to body across a bridge for nine minutes. And it just, it brought tears to my eyes. And Me too. Um, so I, I really hope that you're right. And I do hope that all of these good things that we're seeing and feeling do continue. I mean, you know, when you it's the same amount of energy to do something hateful as it is to do something that's loving. And if we put that collective energy into moving ourselves forward, I, I mean, imagine the change that we could make if every single person who turned their profile black on Tuesday, if every single person kept doing something, 
we'll see change over time. And so I do, I do hope that people don't lose interest or something else doesn't come up that detracts yeah. them from having these important conversations. And that, that leads me into my next question to you, which is how do we keep not only listening, but really hearing each other? Stay curious, stay curious and care. Yeah. You know, stay curious. That's how you, you only ask questions because you're curious about me. Yeah. And your curiosity will make you care about me. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. You and I were talking a little bit about how white people can be shields to black people. Oh, yeah. I'd like you to share that concept. And I'd like you to give an example of what does it look like when white people are serving as your shields? So it all started because I saw this quick little video on Instagram and it was this young black boy who was standing up in front of a line of police officers. Neither party was doing anything inappropriate. He was just exercising his right. And one by one, every friend behind him, they were all white. They just came and they were just a shield in front of him. Just a shield. They're like, not today. He is my brother. And it makes everybody in that situation better. Those young white people who recognized that he was their brother and they were willing to die to protect him, that makes them better people. It calls them up to their highest and best. So what does a shield look like? Not. Yes. So I think it's important that we protect each other. We protect each other and we protect our brothers and our sisters. And we do not let them be the only ones fighting. We don't. What that looks like is, the other day, I'm a part of this uh, group called Fat Girl Running, and I love it. And I, you know, I post my running ruminations there, and they're actually the ones who encourage me to post them outside of the um, group because I've been posting those inside the group, never sharing them with anybody in my social media worlds except for this little group. And um, I did one the other day called Dear White People. And it was just me examining um, white privilege and what it meant. And that, it, honestly, it's not an acknowledgement. It's not saying that you don't work hard and that you haven't done an awful lot to get to where you are. You have. It's just acknowledging that your life is not more complicated because you're white. That's it. It's just like no dude's life is more complicated because he's a man. And we can clearly understand that, right? No guy's like, man, <laughs> only I wasn't a male. This stuff would be happening, you know, and um, my boss would be looking at my breasts. If I just was not a male. And um, so I posted that. And I mean, I had like a thousand people in this group. Like, amazing. This is this is so this is the clearest, most simple explanation. You have just blown my mind. And then there's there's this one Becky. Let's just call her Becky. There's this one Karen or Becky who's like, what does this have to do with running? Let me tell you something. That's all she said. I did not even have time to respond. I had about eight white ladies go, let me tell you what it has something to do. I'm like, all these white ladies were like, not today. You will not ask her one question that will make her defend her heartbreak. Not one more question. That is what being a shield is. They protected me. And I don't, I've never met these women. Hmm. But they did not want me to have to defend my heartbreak. 
And black people are often asked to defend their heart flip and break. Yeah. And it's not all right. Yeah. We watched a movie over the pandemic. And it was actually wasn't a movie. It was a, a, a show. And it was a series. And I can't even remember what it's about, what the name of it is. But it's about this young lady who gets raped. And she is, she's a part of the system in that she is in like a group home. She is, she doesn't have parents and she also is young and she's not the best communicator. And she was violently raped and the guy took photos of her. And when she went to, when she called the police, they were like, this is not how you behave when you get raped. And because she was a very shut down energy. But people respond differently to tragedy. And through the whole series, what you're seeing is a young girl made to defend her heartbreak. Hmm. And it is painful to watch. And, you know, I can't watch a show if there's not going to be redemption in it. I need some redemption, Jesus. I need some redemption. And so it was redemptive in the end. But the pain of watching her have to defend her heartbreak and that she didn't show the heartbreak in ways that they thought was sufficient, that is crazy. And so that is what being a shield is. A shield is you're not going to let my, I am not going to allow my sister to have to defend her experiences and her heartbreak. Not today. Because they saw me. Yeah. And they jumped in. I love those white ladies. I was like, do it, sisters. And then they DM me. They're like, was that all right? I love it. I was like, I saw what you did. And I love it. <laughs> well, I love that. And I think there's ways that we can all see each and every day to be a shield. Um, yeah. So I appreciate you sharing that. Um, you know, one of the things that I also wanted to touch on is that alongside the peaceful protesting, there has been looting. And what would you say to the individuals who are using destructive means to express their feelings? How do we draw them into an inclusive conversation? Acknowledge their pain. Remember to that first thing, like, ask the, ask the higher level questions. Why would that be a reasonable expression? Why would that be a reasonable expression? If I felt like I was consistently not heard, respected or loved, and that I had no modality to make myself understood, maybe I would act a fool too. Maybe I would pull my hair out. <laughs> maybe I would crash my car. I don't know. So I would say, first, let's acknowledge the pain. Don't be like, you know what? What about Martin Luther King and the, the peaceful protest? Nobody wants to tell you Martin Luther King got his ass handed to him over and over again. The people who they were protesting were very violent. And they came at them with dogs and hydrants. No one talks about that. Right. That, was their, that was a violent response by the United States of America to their citizens. Yeah. And so we... So I'm like, so you want me to be peaceful so you can keep kicking my ass? So one, acknowledge the pain. Acknowledge why that would be a normal, that would, not a normal, but that would be like an expression of that pain. Acknowledge it. And then the thing that I would say to my brothers and sisters, I get it. But we have been called to do it many times before. And we still got to be better than them. Yeah. We still have to. 
We have to still be better than them. And that's not fair, but it's true. And everybody who is being like, they're, you know, totally in distress. Look, I'm not for looting. I'm not for destruction. That's not it. But everybody who's so distressed about that, they're not distressed about the America that whooped their ass to that point. That's what you should be distressed about. That's the higher level question. Yeah. How did I contribute to the ass whooping that, that would make people over here think that, you know, the only way I can do it, I've got to burn this shit down. Yeah. That's, that's, and then it's actually kind of unfair, but it's true. When I speak to my brothers and sisters, I say, I know. I know the pain is real. I know it cuts deep. We've not, but it's nothing new. We, we've got to be better than them. Yeah. We have to. Which goes back to easy for you to listen to us. Yeah. Which, you know, just, it breaks my heart when you're saying that because it goes back to what, where we started in the beginning where, you know, you feel that, it's incumbent upon you to come up with the solution and to make it better. And so, um, you know, this is so, it's so complicated and and I, I'm so appreciative of you sharing so openly. Um, I want to, as we think about kind of closing end on a positive note, and that is what gives you hope? What gives me hope? That's a good question. Um, you know that that little black boy standing there in um, front of that line of police officers that looked very scary. It looked scary to me, and I was just looking at it through my phone and seeing those young white kids just stand as a shield in front of him we as human beings, we have the capacity to be amazing. And I love seeing us be amazing. And it gives me hope. I'm like, no one organized that for those young boys. They did. Yeah. It is what they wanted to do. It is their expression. Just like sitting down, you see all those bodies laying down side by side for nine minutes in silence. You know, the only time that we get to see times of peace do not show all of the depth and strength of humanity, just like in our own individual lives. When our lives are flowers, roses, and cupcakes, you know, that's not where the growth or the strength is demonstrated. The depth, growth, and strength is demonstrated in the dry and crooked places, right? So what gives me hope is the land is dry. The ground is broken. And yet we are rising. Yet we are like, not today. Not just like those white girls stood in front of me. Not today. Not today will we go down in history and this be all of who we are. That gives me great hope. When I see these signs of people in Japan and, oh my God, did you see the video of the Maori people in New Zealand and they have this, this fighting song and, and dance and it's so like tribal and powerful and they were doing it for George. 
They, they don't even live in the context of our culture. And when I see this in, in, in I mean, like in France, in Italy, in Denmark, in Sweden, in Australia, New Zealand, in, all over the United States of America and Brazil, like when you see this, that gives me hope. I'm like, we, the best of us is rising. But we couldn't have been called up to rise out of that best place until we saw the most broken, fractured part of us in the street dying. Yeah. So it calls that that gives me hope. Yeah. How I see how many wonderful people are responding. I'm like, see, see, it's kind of like Mr. Rogers, what he said. See, just look for the helpers. We're here. Yeah. They are here. But you can't see the helpers if there's nothing to help. That's right. You can't see the hope rising. When you don't need any hope, when everything's peaceful. So that gives me hope how we are responding. I see the best of us rising and I will not be convinced otherwise. I love that, Shay. And, you know, I, I, you, I listen to, you have car contemplations, you have different conversations with individuals and I always leave listening to your voice, uplifted and energized and comforted. How can people follow you and, and hear what you have to say? Thank you for even asking. Well, I am on Instagram. That's like my main platform. And I kind of cross post from Instagram. Um, and it's at Shea Bear. Just, just follow me. Let's follow each other. Let's, let's do life together. Honestly, that's how they can. And then I have a website, shaybearfield.com. Fantastic. Shay, it's been such an honor to speak with you. I adore our conversations and my life feels so enriched by getting to know you. And so I wanted to thank you. And I am going to say, for those of you who are turning tuning into this conversation as a podcast, if you want to see the live video, I'm going to be posting it on my soon-to-be-launched YouTube channel, Unexpected Launch. It'll be posted on Instagram. And I'm rolling out these new features because I really want to extend the reach of these stories. And I can't wait to hear what you think about them. And Shay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to the Unexpected Launch podcast. Thank you to Duncan Music Project, who produced this episode and composed the music. <laughs>